Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. Our latest bonus episodes include a very long, very detailed conversation about the Breaking Bad sequel movie El Camino. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tosh Robinson, here with Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps. This week, we're looking at two Korean movies that center around the concept of family. So I thought it would be a great idea to bring our own families in as guests. Some of us have kids, some of us have siblings. There are a lot of family members in our lives. And I thought it would be worthwhile to sit down with like 20 or so of them and talk through this film. Keith, you brought your daughter, right? Yeah, a couple of things. I, I got your request earlier today and, and a couple of things. It, it is at this point quite past her bedtime and also i have trouble like getting her to watch uh you know the goosebumps movie she was a little scared to watch that so i don't think the host and parasite are really gonna gonna do it for her. uh okay genevieve who'd you bring uh i missed the memo and i told my fiance to scram so he's playing basketball uh my my dog is here but he's unfortunately not very well versed in international films so i don't think he's gonna be much help uh-huh. Okay. Scott, we're in your house. So like, surely your family can come down here and join us for this conversation, right? Yeah, you know, they would, except my daughters already have an exclusive commitment to another uh, film podcast. I'm curious which one, <laughs> Scott. I mean, we actually don't name it because we don't want to promote another podcast on this show. Okay, right, exactly. I, I, stop bantering. This is ridiculous. I, I can't believe everybody's family is too busy or important or eight years old to come talk about a monster movie and a tense social drama with us right now. How are we supposed to make this work? Uh, Tasha, you realize we've only got four mics, right? And a 20-person conversation was never going to be technologically possible for us. And you maybe could have give us a little more warning than just earlier this afternoon. Uh, we'd have to work things out like babysitting and travel. And did you write the script at the last minute like usual and then expect that everything would just, you know, work out? Yeah, seriously, Tasha, we're all sitting around a table that barely fits us. How do you think we're going to cram another 16 people in here? Look, neither of the films we're talking about tonight are about competency or good, well-thought-out plans or advanced planning. They're just about family. Genevieve, you know what I'm talking about here, right? Like, why don't you tell everybody what the current pairing looks like? Okay, fine. For the sake of our little post-AV club, post-dissolve, found family setup here, I suppose I can pull this together where you kind of screwed the whole plan up. Korean director Bong Joon-ho has had a long-running interest in films about family, from the murder mystery Mother about an aging mom trying to clear her son's name after a homicide accusation, to the Netflix movie Okja about a girl and her grandfather who've turned their genetically modified super pig into a beloved family member. That obsession with family is mirrored in two of Bong's best-known films, his international breakout The Host, about a family trying to rescue one of their own from a mutant monster, and his new film Parasite, about a family of con artists who entwine themselves heavily with an oblivious, privileged family and come to regret it. 
Both films star Song Kang-ho as a father trying to keep things together on his kid's behalf, and both are about the sense of duty among protagonists who have to improv a lot as unexpected situations arise. Class and politics feature in both movies, but mostly they're about emotional ties in ways that resonate even though the movies cover very different tones and genres. Thanks, Genevieve. At least I can feel like you've got my back here. Natasha, we've all got your back. We're all about coming together here, supporting each other, and presenting each other in the best possible light. We're also about giving each other a lot of crap. What else is family about? Hmm. I guess I can't argue with that. We'll be back to talk about family, the host, and Parasite after this. Hey, wait. Keith, are you using my mic? You know I like the one with the blue slip cover best. What's up with that? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I just this week you didn't get here in time, so it's the blue is the one. warmest yeah. color. I, do, I don't what care I how I know is why did anyone save me any There's a lot to talk about with Bong Joon-ho's 2006 monster movie, The Host, but maybe the most important thing to know about it is that he and his creature designer informally called the monster in the film Steve Buscemi. Bong said in interviews that he thought of the creature at the heart of the film like he thought of Buscemi's character in the Coen Brothers movie Fargo as clumsy, uncharismatic, and unpredictable. It's a nasty beast that does terrible things, but it's not exactly in control and it's only occasionally scary. This isn't the kind of monster movie where an overwhelming force like the aliens and aliens come up against an organized force with terrible destructive power. It's about a sloppy creature that behaves randomly with sometimes terrible results. The same could be said of the host's human cast. Bang has characterized the central family group as, quote, a family of losers, unquote. They're sympathetic figures, but collectively they have very few skills or assets apart from their mutual caring and connection. They aren't just civilians with no particular skills at fighting or hunting giant mutant creatures. They're pretty definitively comedy yokel types without many impressive abilities in general. When Steve Buscemi, the fish monster, snatches one of them and hauls her off to his lair, the rest of her family doesn't have all that much recourse in saving her. That's one of the many things that makes The Host such a distinctive movie and such a signature Bong Joon-ho story. The Host wasn't Bong's first film, or even his first celebrated, widely recognized film. The Korean director kicked off his feature-making career with Barking Dogs Never Bite, a dark comedy about an unemployed university professor who kidnaps a series of dogs, which keep winding up as food for his building's janitor. He followed up with 2003's Memories of Murder, a celebrated, award-winning drama about the fruitless police hunt for Korea's first serial killer. The Host was another genre shift for him, over to a creature feature. But while these three films presented very differently, they had a common thread. All three of them focus on ensembles struggling for basic competence, baffled by aspects of the world they can't navigate or predict, and living with situations that occasionally spin out of control in startling ways. Many of Bong's later films, including the Netflix original movie Okja, the post-apocalyptic science fiction action film Snowpiercer, and the new class warfare drama Parasite, all follow the same pattern through different genres and tones, with sudden wild veers into over-the-top, violent action, and heroes who, at their best, are only fitfully competent, prepared, or capable. But the other major thread running throughout his films is the idea of family. In The Host, it's mostly blood family, as the central group of characters deal with the loss of one of their own. Park Gang-do is an incompetent, somewhat childish man who dotes on his middle school-aged daughter, Hyun-seo. Gang-do works for his father, Park Hee-bong, who owns a small riverside snack shop. Gang-do's sister, Nam-ju, is a skilled archer whose competition-level skills are hampered by doubts about her own worth. And they're all a little distance from Gang-do and Nam-ju's judgmental alcoholic brother, Nam-il. When the monster attacks a crowd by the river and runs off with Hyun-seo, Gang-do and the others try to rescue her, but their attempts go awry. 
It sounds simplistic and predictable to say they reconnect as a family in the process, but they certainly find a unity of purpose they were lacking. And by the end, the host is also about found family, which seems to interest Bong as much as blood relatives do. But it's also about breaking the familiar rule of the creature genre. The host became an international sensation in part because it's funny, tragic, and well-observed. But it also attracted interest because it so obviously subverts horror film conventions. The central monster, originally teased as an unseen shadow lurking under the water, bursts forth and fully exposes itself barely 10 minutes into the film, in defiance of the slow reveal pattern that's been part of nearly every creature feature since Jaws. The story winds up being not really about the monster, or even the hunt for the monster, so much as the emotional effect it has on the people around it. The heroes aren't particularly tough or smart, and they aren't eliminated one by one as the stakes escalate. Bong even subverts the expected triumphant, hard-won ending with a tragedy that leaves the central family in an unexpected place. All of this is part of Bong's conscious attempts to make the standard monster movie more realistic. The early action sequence where the monster runs amok, he says, is meant to represent how disaster strikes in real life, unexpectedly, without buildup or foreshadowing, before anyone's ready for it. The focus on the central family's emotions is meant to feel more real than the mutant monster could possibly feel. That unexpected ending is an acknowledgement that real life doesn't always have happily ever afters. There's a weird tension here between the idea of emotional and narrative realism and a story about a big, flappy, mutant CGI fish critter. But the conceit works. The host doesn't do much as it's expected to, and that makes it strikingly memorable. Like Steve Buscemi, the weird demogorgon-looking monster at the middle of the story, the host sometimes feels misshapen and unpredictable. But that just makes it more mesmerizing and more of a tantalizing promise for the equally unpredictable films Bong went on to make afterward. I hate dust more than anything. I'll, I'll clean again. You don't have to clean up now. Why don't you dump this first? That's Paul morning. Formaldehyde, to be precise. To be even more precise, dirty formaldehyde. Every bottle is coated with layers of dust. Pour them into the sink. Ex excuse me? Just empty every bottle to the very last drop. It's just they are toxic chemicals and the regulation states that... Pour them right down the drain, Mr. Kim. If I pour them in the drain, they run into the Han River. That's right. Let's just dump them in the Han River. But you know, this is not just any toxic chemicals, so you The Han River is very broad, Mr. Kim. Let's try to be broad-minded about this. Hmm? Anyway, that's an order. So Start pouring. So guys, is, is realism the first word you think of when you think of the host? Uh, I've read a lot of interviews with Bong about this movie, and he, he talks a lot about like the film's emotional and narrative realism. Is that the right word for it? I think emotional realism mostly works. I mean, the characters, as you say, are, are kind of broad. I feel like this early attack really does feel like what, as you suggested, disaster striking out of nowhere in the middle of an otherwise ordinary day. 
But, you know, the, I mean, the U.S. Army elements, all the Americans are very cartoonish in this. I don't take offense at that. It's just, that's just part of it. And obviously, there's also a big, as you say, flappy fish monster at the center of it. Uh, so it's not the first word I think of, but I could be talked into seeing that as an apt descriptor of the film, though. That part of it, too, the chemical dump is based on a real thing. A real thing, yeah. Yeah, so in that sense. But I would not describe the film as realistic, necessarily. What's striking to me about it, and, and, and I encountered it as part of a, a wave of Korean cinema that started coming into film festivals and into art theaters in around 2005 or so and beyond. This was 2006, I think. Are the tonal shifts. I mean, that's kind of like the signature element of Korean cinema to me, the ability to have a lot of different feelings going on at once and it being just fine. Uh, So, you know, I mean, the the classic example for me in The Host is when they're all mourning (laughs) the loss of their daughter and then it turns into this weird slapsticky sequence where all the crying and carrying on suddenly becomes sort of comic and and, uh, it's an extremely surprising thing and it's, but it's also quite typical of the movies that were coming out of Korea at the time, just having that being completely free to go wherever you want with tone. And so this movie kind of hits you on a lot of different levels. I wouldn't say realism is one of them, but it's an extremely funny film. It's a thriller. It's a horror movie. It's a family drama. It's got all of those things put together into one kind of wild package. And at the same time, Bong Joon-ho is a master filmmaker who has complete control over his effects, um, who has, who's, just, who's a natural in the same way that Steven Spielberg is a natural, just as a, a wonderful sense of it, like where to place the camera and how to build tension and, and how to use uh, reaction shots, for example, as a way of um, you know raising expectation and awe and tension. I mean, he's just he's a great filmmaker, and I think that the host, it was, I think, the first film of his I saw, and re- it just persuades you right away. <laughs> For what it's worth, we may be dealing with uh, cultural considerations there because Bang has said in interviews that that sequence at the funeral, the outsized mourning sequence, is actually one of the more realistic sequences in the film. He says that things like that do actually happen at uh, like Korean public funerals. That 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 kind of like outsized behavior is actually like pretty typical, and it may play as comic for us, but apparently it wasn't meant necessarily to play as like the squirming on the floor and everything. That's what he says. Like I don't know where the line is drawn but he did emphasize that that is coming out of like real behavior as opposed to being as as comic as it may play for us but Mm. Genevieve what do you think about the realism aspect of the film I mean I think the sort of the tonal shifts or the film's unwillingness to sort of stick to a tone whether comedic or tragic from moment to moment is kind of part of its realism you know it's a little divorced from your standard movie operating procedure where it's like that scene is is a good example like this is a scene that in a lot of movies you would expect to be set up to be tragic and to make you cry and it ends up making you do something in between that's like confusing and weird and you're like you're I'm laughing but I should be crying but this is obviously comedic and I think it's just sort of a reflection of real life you know and the way that kind of emotions play out in real life versus in the movies where it's not always cut and dry how scenarios play out and how you react to them and how the people around you react to them. You know, it doesn't necessarily follow the A to B to C progression that, you know, we get in a lot of movie narratives for the sake of tracking a clear emotional arc. I think the way it sort of veers around emotionally and tonally is part of its realism. I'm sort of curious if 
<laughs> discussing genre in film is always uh, a little bit of a crapshoot. There is sort of a question of, does it matter? It's not like we're responsible for shelving this film. But I, I mean, you could call this a horror film. You could call it a comedy, a drama. Like it's definitely a family movie. It's certainly got action elements. Is there a genre for this film or is it just kind of its own unique thing? <laughs> I mean, I mean, this movie was first recommended to me, I believe by Scott as a, you know, a horror movie that I could handle. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I think the first time I watched it was, you know, many Halloweens ago because it was like, this is a, a monster movie that I can handle. And it was. Good job, Scott. Good, good recommendation. <laughs> yeah. It's a movie I, re- I revisited several times since uh, and, and enjoy very much. You know, I mean, I'm obviously no expert about horror movies, but I know one when I see one because I want to avoid them. You know, coming from that position, I, I wouldn't call this a horror movie uh, or even really an action movie. I mean, it certainly has elements of all those things. But again, going back to the question of realism, maybe that's also part of the same idea is that it's not slotting comfortably into a genre and the conventions we expect of it. It's messier. It's it's weirder. It's It moves at its own distinct pace and, and gait. That said, having just watched 15 Godzilla movies back to back, it very much nods to that tradition. It's very much... It's also Jaws. It Jaws, Jaws as well. Um, yeah. But I mean, just the idea of this this monster created by human hubris uh, coming back as, as a as a symbol of, of all that uh, to destroy uh, innocent bystanders is, you know, that's Godzilla. I mean, that's and, and there's sort of, uh, you know, people screaming and running and all that is part of that tradition as well. I mean, if it's Jaws, it's kind of a reverse Jaws. I mean, if you can imagine Quint getting swallowed by the shark at the beginning of Jaws and mm-hmm. then everybody else just spending the rest of the movie trying to find out if there was a way to get him back. That's that's sort of what we have here. Not to mention like the full monster reveal at the beginning. That aspect of the film was was really loudly trumpeted when the film first came out. Uh, people were just so aghast at the fact that he broke the rules. Do you remember when you first saw it, whether all of the ways in which it was like telegraphed or announced, the way people talked about it as, as a subversive film uh, came across for you? Did it? Did you find it as subversive as people were saying it was? I didn't know first time I saw this that that's what they were going to do. So like, oh, we're doing this. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> so that really worked for me. Maybe I recognized it. The thing that struck me about it, though, at the time and now is that it was a big effects sequence that was done in the daytime mm-hmm. um it worked and worked yeah i mean you know and it, it works because the, multiple the, sequences there's one at the end of the film too it's mm-hmm. also yeah but i mean yeah. the thing that works about it i mean for one the digital effects such as they are are, are good or they're well handled but that's where Bong's just genius as a filmmaker comes in. He's able to use those Spielbergian touches to develop that sequence and give it the punch that it needs. I mean, it really is about focusing on faces and what pe- people are seeing and reacting to, much more so than the the monster itself. But it, but the monster itself also, you know, he delivers the goods on that as as, as well. So uh, um, that's what really stood out for me. Not necessarily the placement of the sequence in the movie. I mean, because I, I, I think if you look at a if you compare it to other horror movies i mean monster movies certainly defer these things until later but horror films often start with a big scare at the beginning and then hit you with beats later on and 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 he does that as well so i think he's maybe following that outline a little bit more than the traditional monster movie or jaws talking about that focus on a kind of the faces of the people i this movie is so character driven i'm curious sort of how you feel about how these characters are drawn about these kind of like big comic stereotypes that they embody about how the story is told around kind of their peccadilloes and their interactions well i mean i love his star song kang ho is just a a Mm -hmm. wonderful 
presence and, and he's wonderful again in Parasite, which we'll talk about later. And, uh, you know, he's in Memories of Murder as well, which is which until Parasite was my favorite film of Bong's. He's really funny and very lovable. You know, he's just he just is this big sort of bumbling, likable guy. I think I think that Bong likes to cast him in roles in which he is an underdog uh, and lives an exceedingly modest life as a bit of a slob. Um, and that's the kind of his, his character type, but he's also hugely uh, devoted to the people that he loves, the people around, around him. And uh, you know, that comes through beyond the bu- buffoonery, I guess. Yeah. And I, I love the choice to give him that horrible bleach blonde <laughs> hair. I mean, he already has like a, just a very striking face and we get to look at it a lot. But like aside from just sort of the practical matter of uh, making it easier to follow him in, in these action scenes, like I think it is actually like a character trait having him have this sort of terrible and youthful hairstyle because when we meet him at the beginning like it's, it's almost a surprise when you realize he's he's a father mm-hmm. you know that the, the little girl he's interacting with is his daughter and not a, his little sister or something you know he has a very childish air about him and the hair uh you know helps carry off that air um and then i i didn't remember this until rewatching the film for this but at the very end sort of the epilogue when he has sort of become a father figure to a new child and after the ending tragedy uh he no longer has that hair you know and he looks more dad-like you know but he's still that sort like he he turns the tv off with his foot because he can't find the remote like he's still that sort of goofy guy but he just presents as a little more grown a little more grounded even just something as subtle as hair color i think and bong's hands sort of reflects characterization i love the warmth of that scene too because i mean the film you know obviously has lots of running and screaming and, and uh, comic extremes but it comes down to it, it really is a movie about family um uh, as we as we set up and and uh i had forgotten how tragic the ending was i'd forgotten that, that's, mm-hmm. the, that it goes there and and uh it, it, it made me really sad <laughs> you know this was you know you really get to know the little girl and and uh you know, she's really feels like, you know, she's the most competent character in the film in some way. She's good. She's able to keep herself alive and protect others. And to lose her is it feels like uh, it's a real statement he's making. And to go back to the conversation about realism, the fact that she doesn't survive, I think, is is a realistic thing, you know, like it, it kind of defies our expectations about heroes and who wins and loses or who's a good guy and a bad guy in this scenario, you know, like the the little girl doesn't get saved. And that's probably how it would actually happen. And it would be really upsetting. Bong had a really interesting statement about in his perspective, Gangdo is kind of a monster in his own right in this film. He's he's the monster of the family, uh, he said in an interview. And just the way that his brother and sister look at him is meant to be kind of indicative of that, that he's he's irresponsible, He's he doesn't have it together, he fathered this child that he's not very good at taking care of. It, that's not a comparison, again, that I think anybody would necessarily watch this film and say. He seems to mean too well to be a monster. But I'm sitting here and, and nodding along because, the, the well, first of all, I'm thinking of how he falls asleep constantly and how that is like it kind of reflective of the, the monster in this film, too, which is, you know, we see sleeping or pretending to sleep for, you know, stretches of time and then suddenly burst into action. But also that scene where 
their father is talking to Namil and Namju about uh, Gangdu and telling them, you know, how he didn't get enough protein as a chi- as a child, and that's why he is the way he is. Like, there's this sort of like a, you know, I'm making excuses for the way he is. Feel to that that speech that I hadn't thought about it in the context of you know them seeing him as as a monster, but now that you say that, Tasha, I'm like, oh yeah, it's all right there in that scene. Yeah, there's some subtleties to the film that I think might be a little hard to get in translation that Bonks mm-hmm. talked about. One of them being that uh, the little boy at the end, Siju, is kind of meant to be representational of Gangdo as uh, like his, sort of his younger self. And there's a a kind of di- a series of dialogue choices there where they apparently speak in very similar ways. And you're supposed to kind of get the impression uh, that the two of them have a lot in common. And by taking up fatherhood for this child, he's kind of taking up fatherhood for like his own inner child and maybe moving, like, as you say, with the hairstyle towards a better kind of responsibility, a more paternal kind of responsibility. I think that's a really neat idea. I'm not sure how well it comes across to people who aren't hearing it, hearing the original language. Speaking of which, a a word of warning. (laughs) I saw this film in the theater and uh, with subtitles and I went to I did not own this film so I went to rent it through my you know my video rental service of choice and there's only one option there and it was the dubbed option oh, wow. uh, which oh, I would do no. not do not recommend mm. but it was kind of an interesting experience because I had the subtitles on while I was watching the English dubbed version and there were definitely some differences in the scene where the two street kids are stealing the food do they refer to it in the uh, subtitles in the version you saw as them being Robin Hoods, or is there is there like a, a Korean term that they use? I don't yeah. recall that. It, it, no, yeah, it's a Korean okay. term. I can't, yeah. I can't recall it. Well, they, but they, it's definitely not Robin Hoods. Yeah, they dumbed it down for American yeah. <laughs> for, for English speaking audiences, I guess. So anyway, don't recommend. But it was kind of an interesting experience. That's actually, as somebody who reviewed uh, anime for 13 years for the Sci-Fi Channel, I very often used to watch things with both the subtitles and the dub on mm-hmm. uh, for comparison purposes. And it's really, really common for the subtitles to be a more literal reading and for the script for the dubbed version to be heavily rewritten, primarily to make the mouth movements match, match more. Mm-hmm. But as a result, sort of in the process, uh, often simplifying things or Americanizing them more. And I always assumed that there was an assumption there that anybody listening to the dub was somebody who couldn't hack subtitles and wanted a more Americanized version. But that that is just something that I've seen over and over. It may be something as simple as a difference between the companies that handle subtitle translation and the groups that handle uh, dubbing translation. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that that I've seen that dynamic a lot for what it's worth. I mean, it's kind of a, an unfortunate consequence of the film's massive success that it was that it was available in that format or that was the format of choice for you. That yeah, yeah, because uh, uh, this. This was a record-breaking hit in Korea at the time, and then and then internationally also embraced for pretty obvious reasons. And uh, it's something that people who don't watch foreign language films could watch it, enjoy, and embrace. Uh, so uh, you know, perhaps in, in dubbed English. I don't know why anybody would like that, but <laughs> maybe some people do. I guess. I am curious what you guys make of Namju as a character. Uh, she's played by Duna Bay, who went on to uh, do a bunch of different things with the Wachowskis. Most uh, noticeably, she had one of the starring roles as like the resident martial arts badass in Sensate. Uh, she was kind of the the breakout, most interesting, most aggressive character there. But she was 
also uh, in Cloud Atlas, among other things. And here, I, I don't quite know what to make of her. She seems like the most conventional uh, like action movie, monster movie, hero of this family group in that she has like an actual martial skill that comes into play. Mm. But at the same time, she kind of seems like the least characterized to me. What what did you make of her role in the film? I, I mean, I'd argue that all of the characterizations in the family, none of them are particularly deep except for perhaps Gangdu. But I, I actually this viewing through really responded to her character arc and that may be a little separate from characterization but you know she is ostensibly this archery badass but we only actually see her be successful at it once you know like the very first time we meet her it's with her bronze medal which is Hmm. sort of presented as a, a symbol of failure and over and over again in the course of the movie she like draws her bow and arrow as if to do something and then it doesn't happen whether because she bails or because she's forced to bail or but then at the very end she is the one who uh you know when the molotov cocktail uh fails she is the one who you know gets to shoot the flaming arrow and and kill the monster so there's a very satisfying arc there in terms of her sort of failure to success and i i think to the extent it you know plays out in her characterization you definitely see a a need to prove herself sort of driving her through the scenario with her family yeah i mean i think it's just kind of a, a real simple redemption arc there sporting redemption arc right i mean of just of just another genre it's an inspirational sports movie where um <laughs> in, a, in, in just the sport itself is hugely important and popular in, in korea if you ever watched the summer olympics uh, south korea absolutely dominates in archery they kill they kill it absolutely kill it so uh it just it's a very you know it's one of those things where you're just like where th- that seed is planted and it's like this is going to come back and it comes back in a, in a way that is hugely satisfying, uh, but not necessarily illuminating on a character level. I don't know if it even needs to be, though. Usually monster movies are, are kind of about high stakes and high tension. And there is there is a fairly one fairly high stake in here in that you've got a little girl in a, a terrible situation and people trying to rescue her. But high tension, I don't know. There's, there's not a lot in this movie. <laughs> as Genevieve noted, it's a, a horror movie she can handle. <laughs> and as we've, we've heard before, like it's not necessarily gore that gets her. It's, it's high tension. Do you guys feel a sense of monster movie tension here? When it needs to get there, right? I mean, it's, uh, you know, the last third or so of the film has got plenty of suspense set pieces and stuff. It's not thinking of the scene. Is it in a uh, sewer or something or what? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, that whole the, that entire sequence, is, which is quite long, is played for maximum tension and worked quite well for me. I think also the qualities that make the monster interesting are kind of what is where the tension comes from. Is like this is a wild animal on the loose in an environment where it's not supposed to be, and it could do anything at any given moment. It doesn't really seem to have any motive beyond eating and sleeping um, and vomiting up skeletons. And one of my favorite scenes, um, <laughs> but it's it's basically just they're doing whatever it needs to do to to get its next meal and that kind of makes it scary it's a pretty grody critter yeah i'm not just talking about its appearance i'm I'm just talking about like the habit of storing live food and barfing up skeletons mm-hmm. and <laughs> all its weird extra limbs hanging off like it's it's not like a sleek realistic thing it's it's pretty creepy formaldehyde's a powerful stuff you know <laughs> you don't know what it's going to do to the wildlife um, dirty formaldehyde oh, dirty formaldehyde. yeah sorry <laughs> dusty 
it's got dust on it. I think the monster is also interesting the way it has that that tail that allows it to it, it swings and hangs very gracefully and obviously can swim very fast. But once it's on land, it's a you know a, a lumbering Steve Buscemi. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a Poor wonky. Steve Buscemi. He's perfectly spry. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, he he literally trips and falls downstairs in that opening action sequence. He yeah. like he rolls over himself because he doesn't. He doesn't understand the Dutch tilt of stairs. Like he's, he, does, he also kind of doesn't have back legs. He's just, he, he, re- he reminds me of a friend of my dog whose back legs didn't work, and he had to kind of like drag his legs behind him. That reminds me of, of the monster here. I thought you were going to oh, say, "Reminds you of a friend of mine." <laughs> she has a no, friend her, who her also doesn't work. have back legs. Her, her back legs, front legs are great, but her back legs. <laughs> um, but to, to go to the tension question, I don't know that there are that many like at least not sustained tension you know like there's some little bursts where you know the the monster is approaching and everyone's sort of looking and going what is that and you're going you idiots it's a monster run but i think the the one sequence that really sort of you know gave me that heart in my throat feeling is when hyun so is in the is trying to uh, escape the the sewers i mean she spends most of the movie trying to escape the sewer but um they've you know they've thrown the rope made of the clothes of all the dead people down there you know they've made a rope and they've thrown it over and uh, but they can't reach it to get out and she notices that the monster is sleeping and uses that opportunity to sort of run up the monster to to grab the the coats and there's just this really long prolonged beat where you don't know where you know something went wrong but you don't know exactly what it is and then the beat continues because the monster is not doing what you expect it to do in that moment and you don't really get resolution to that moment it cuts away before you you know before you get the full extent of of the follow up to that moment so i think just the way that is choreographed and then edited is where the tension comes from more than situationally. Fair. So this is this is a pretty political film. And this is one of the few areas where Bong kind of admitted that he wasn't going for realism. Uh, the formaldehyde dumping thing was actually inspired by something real done by Americans in Korea. It, it does have the the origin form of realism. But as far as the kind of exaggerated cartoony evilness of the Americans that you were talking about, Keith, his feeling there was basically, when am I ever going to do another monster movie? <laughs> like mm-hmm. uh, politics always come up in uh, monster movies. There's always a bad guy that, that makes terrible choices that enables the monster. Uh, and I felt like I should play this, that up here. Cause I'm probably not going to do this genre again. So, I, but at the same time, the movie was talked about a lot at the time because it was so rare. There's there's so much conversation that goes on in America about who the bad guys are allowed to be these days. You know, if you have a like a black drug dealer in the streets, you're playing into like decades upon decades of negative stereotyping where black actors had a very hard time finding jobs that weren't uh, thug or or drug dealer or what have you. If you demonize like any particular like culture or country, uh, then some you're accused of misrepresentation so that's something that america has dealt with with 
other countries, other cultures, other ethnicities for a long time, it's fairly rare for us to get these films back where we see ourselves as just stereotyped, like over the top bad guys. And some people uh, freaked out a little bit about like seeing themselves in this movie. What, what did you guys think about it's that just aspect desserts. of it? Come we, on, we, we, we can we can take it, but I, I well, also we can think... definitely take it. But what do you think about it? We dish it out. We should take it. Well, I mean, and it's also very kind of personal to Bong's experience. You know, he he grew up in Korea under, you know, U.S. military occupation not long after after the war. And, you know, kind of famously in an anecdote that he has shared many, many times, uh, you know, on, on this press cycle, you know, learned about movies through the, you know, American military television station that played them. And I think we see a little bit of his experience reflected in the character of uh, Nam Il, who we're told, you know, at university was very involved in, in, in demonstrations. And uh, as was Bong in the in the late 80s, you know, was a time of political upheaval. He said, like, every week there was demonstration at the university. So I think probably some of his experiences coming through in that character and sort of in the the thread of demonstration and protest against American uh, military presence in particular is coming through there. I have to say, I maybe my favorite sequence in the entire film. There's there's a lot to love in this film. There are a lot of really outstanding and striking set pieces. But the release of Agent Yellow, uh, mm-hmm. it's just it's so beautifully shot. It's so strikingly shot. And it really gets across a sense of what it might be like to to be a country dealing with the kind of pollution uh, that America engages in, the kind of power plays, the kind of militarization and weaponization uh, America deals with, and just what it's like to be a citizen of another country, like <laughs> looking at some of the things that America gets up to overseas, and to depend on us, to depend on us for defense, but also with that dependence comes sort of a license, you know, a license to do whatever, you know, it's like. We'll, we'll do whatever because you need us to protect your country. I think it, that it captures that tension. Uh, yeah, the well. sort of sense of like needing that power but fearing it at the same time. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a really beautiful metaphor, and it's uh, one of the most finely tuned things here in a film that's pretty finely tuned in a lot of ways. And again, the the Agent Yellow sequence is another. I I'm assuming direct reference to Bong's own experience. There's a um, in Vulture. There's a really good profile of Bong. And he talks a little bit about his experience at university and clouds of tear gas were a near daily presence during his his years on campus. And um, Molotov cocktails, it says Bong, along with everyone in his generation, made, quote, humanitarian Molotov cocktails from a mixture of paint thinner and water. Uh, They were explosive, but less dangerous than those made with gasoline. So specifically, Molotov cocktails and tear gas were a big part of his his experience and i think the fact that we see them both used in that scene i from what i've read of bong i i'm pretty certain that was something that he you know was drawing from his direct experience rather than a broader statement he wanted to make man that's fascinating i love the idea that this again this movie about a big floppy cgi fish mutant is both a personal statement and a political statement 
And then on top of that, just a, like a, an attempt at an exercise in cinematic realism. I, I think it's fascinating. <laughs> well, let's wrap up with this. We're going to, in our next episode, compare this uh, fairly thoroughly, I think, with Parasite. But we've all seen, I think, uh, at least some other uh, Bong Joon-ho films. I'm curious how this stacks up for you, uh, where sort of where you see the connections, whether you have other favorites in addition to this one. Well, Parasite is my favorite. <laughs> we'll <laughs> talk about that later. Uh, my favorite until I saw Parasite was Memories of Murder, which is utterly unique in that it is a film about a very sobering matter, which is a, you know a serial killer, and it's a serial killer film in Korea, and that it, serial killers are not a thing <laughs> in Korea, and so it was, so so it's dealing with this spate of inexplicable and tragic crimes but it also is a slapstick comedy and an extremely funny one focused on two on these these detectives who are these sort of bumpkin types and uh they literally stumble around and it's it's the, the film's full of pratfalls but it's also um it also allows the um tragedy of the situation to sink in as well so i think it's a really unique film and i think a film i always point to as being just this perfect specimen of korean cinema in terms of in terms of its uh, ability to manage tone and its audaciousness with regard to tone but i love Mo- mother is isn't one i really like a lot and um that that would certainly be up there as as far as his films are concerned uh, as well having not seen his first film yet breaking dogs never bite i mean there's just not a film he's made i don't like a lot so it's kind of tough, I, tough I to write i can imagine you really openly embracing that movie yeah. which is it really... sounds like he would prefer you didn't uh see it <laughs> well that's possible too. i, I, like I, I, I like don't know about that i i'm I just thinking it. of like keith keith is a an inveterate dog lover and uh yeah but dog death in movies make him set makes him sad and this, if, this if it's, is if really it's a movie black... about doing bad things to dogs it's kind of black comedy i can handle it a little better you'd be fine but, um, i've, I've yeah, seen i've yeah. seen barking dogs and everybody it's it's uh, you, you do you do fine with it but i mean i mean what are those weakest films i mean is i mean okja might be one where the elements don't always uh, cohere quite as well as they do in some of his other oh, ones for me I like it's that film a lot though for me it's Snowpiercer. Really? honestly mm-hmm. i like i like really like the premise of that there are individual elements of it that i really like but for me the the satirical elements are just so over the top and the end i find the ending just unsupportable Mm. i having spent the entire film like watching this hero try to get into a confrontation with uh, the the villain and then when he gets there he just shuts down for no clear reason and just stands around for what feels like half an hour of monologue i to me the the pacing of that film is just terribly terribly off such a powerful metaphor though and tilda swinton's awesome it's a great metaphor it's it's full of great imagery it's full of horrifying uh, meaningful imagery the whole thing with the sticking arms out the window until they break off is just a, a bit of amazing horror but for me the the ending of the film just really doesn't mm. hold up at all i'm a huge fan of mother personally i i think that parasite is his best film uh hands down which is saying something because he's made some great films but uh my second favorite may be mother i think the it may be his most conventional film in terms of of tone, in terms of not going into these over-the-top comedy or, or violent places, but in terms of the really finely drawn characters and, and family dynamic there. And then there are some things that happen in that film that I did not see coming. And I, I just, I think it's it's beautifully scripted. Plus, uh, Kim Hai-Jia is, is so good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's just performance of a lifetime. Absolutely uh, amazing. I'm a bit of a, a bong dilettante, you know. I've, I've, <laughs> I haven't yet seen uh, Mother or Memories of Murder, which I know are just huge blind spots that actually I intend to correct oh, you'll love this weekend. 
yeah, yeah, no. Um, I I have I have plans to watch them uh, with people who I saw Parasite with who now just want to devour more. So, you know, that that's a good thing. But I, I, I just do want to note that we did talk about Okja on this podcast previously. We paired it with Babe. <laughs> which yeah, I, that was I a still, good one. I, I still think it's, it's <laughs> pretty inspired. brilliant on our parts. Yeah. But I, I, I'd, have to run, <laughs> I'd have to run the numbers, but I think with, with these two episodes, we'll have covered Bong three times, which I think we've only done that with two other directors, which are appropriately Steven Spielberg and... Oddly, David Lowry. But <laughs> <laughs> well, Scorsese, we've done a lot of Scorsese's, haven't we? Oh, I, f- I forgot about our recent Scorsese cut. So, yeah. But, you know, the, it's good company sure. to be in. <laughs> uh, he deserves to be up there. He's an incredible yes. filmmaker. Who? Martin who? <laughs> he wants Scorsese. is also good. <laughs> whoa, 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 Scott. Let's let's Scott. not go over the top here. Uh, you know, there's there's room for there's room for your Martin fella and uh, those MCU movies that he uh, I I hear that he likes and a whole lot of other films. And there are also room for uh, a number of other films that we've talked about in the past, which other people would like to talk to us about. We've got a lot more feedback coming up after this break. time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film we've still got a ways to go on the feedback on our pairing of joker and dark knight returns scott take it away okay uh matt writes i picked up on something in your discussion about the dark knight and joker that i'd be interested to hear you discuss relating to the politics of batman films i love batman particularly the animated series in the nolan films despite recognizing that batman kind of necessarily incorporates a conservative view of the world and how to attack its problems that is gotham's problems can only be solved by a billionaire who focuses most of his energy on providing quote-unquote security and i'm a crazed lefty your comments about heath ledger's joker being an agent of chaos meant to be a physical manifestation of terrorism got me thinking about how both the dark knight and joker Based on your reviews and conversation, I have not seen it, address the contemporary threats America faced slash faces at the time each film was released and how both Nolan and Phillips end up buying the story that real-life American conservatives are slash were selling. In the Bush era, the messaging was that terrorists, read foreign Islamic terrorists, were just evil incarnate who hate our freedom and just want to destroy our way of life for no discernible reason. There was no attempt to grapple with the true motivations behind the terrorist actions, much like the Dark Knight accepts the assumption that Joker is simply an agent of chaos and has no motivation other than to watch the world burn. In the Trump era, I would argue that white nationalist slash incels slash white male domestic terrorism uh, is a much more prominent threat than terrorism. And by all accounts, the Todd Phillips Joker is a two-hour attempt to understand why such a terrorist would act the way he does and might even be a defense-slash-apology of such a terrorist. This echoes the standard conservative talking point about mass shootings being a quote-unquote mental health issue and the insistent narrative that we as a country need to understand where white nationalists and Trump supporters are coming from. I thought it was interesting that both Nolan and Phillips apparently have created a Joker that A, reflects the contemporary threats or fears in America, and B, endorses the conservative interpretation of those threats. 
It's entirely unsurprising and depressing that both politicians and pundits and Batman film directors don't see a reason to explore the motivations of foreign, non-white terrorists, but bend over backwards to explain away the actions of domestic white male terrorists. I think it's sort of endemic to comic book superhero stories that they come from a conservative mindset because they come from a place of polarization. They come from a, a kind of black and white place of good guys and bad guys. And criminals are bad guys. Terrorists are bad guys. Like there's no point in understanding their motivation because that's just getting in the way of punching them in the face. And the more you understand them and empathize with them, the more complicated the escapism factor of punching them in the face gets. So I do think this letter is on the nose about how interesting it is that we're spending the time trying to understand the motivations of people when we've spent so little time trying to understand the motivations of other kinds of, of criminals in these stories. But I don't know that we really do spend that much time trying to understand the Joker in Dark Knight Returns. I, I don't think that it's the case that Batman accepts the line that he's just an agent of chaos. I think that line is fed to us repeatedly by Joker himself. He explains what he's about repeatedly. And his explanation is, I'm, I'm just an agent of chaos. I just want to blow things up. Uh, I just want people to not trust people. That's the only explanation we get. And it's still, I, I mean, I've talked about this a lot on the podcast. It doesn't necessarily make sense to me. It makes me think of him as a lot more cartoony and just something that, that can't really be dealt with in any way but face punching. But it also just puts him in that very black and white space where there is no understanding his motives because his motives basically don't exist. Like his, his motives are chaos and craziness in a way that I don't think, I don't think he's a mental health, health issue. I do think that Todd Phillips' Joker is a mental health issue. Yeah, I thought about the whole gun control, get, get, you know, mental health argument watching Joker as, as well. And, and you know, I, I think the most sympathetic reading you could do to that is, is sort of an indictment of, of the failure of social systems to, to help out the mentally ill. But it really does also kind of play into the whole, like, get the crazy people off the street mentality uh, that of the people that don't want to actually address uh, you know, actual gun control issues. But I mean, we, we may hit, be hitting up against a, a limitation of the superhero genre in general, because if you have too great an understanding of the uh, mental health issues of, of the people that make up Arkham Asylum, they, they, it's not really that fun to watch Batman uh, punch them uh, that much. Uh, you know, I think some of the better Batman comics have kind of gotten into that a little bit. I mean, I think there's been some more recently been some sympathetic treatments of, of poison Ivy um, that kind of, kind of gets into to her motivations in a way, but at a certain point that you, you kind of de-villainize people when you, when you, when you make them too complex and understandable, which is sort of a problem with the heart of Joker in a way where it's like, it is, I do feel like it leans way too much to, you know, glamorizing or, or, or romanticizing at least his, his loneliness and isolation in, in ways that, that, uh, uh, make me feel uncomfortable. Well, I think that then it's very important that there is no Batman in the film and that version of the Joker, Arthur Fleck, never gets face punched. Sure. You know, I, I absolutely agree that it's kind of glorifying and uh, sympathizing with his point of view, but then it becomes not a superhero movie, mm -hmm. which, which it's not trying to be. That's not a knock against it. But I think this film illustrates why we don't spend more time mostly uh, sympathizing with villains because then it becomes the villain's story. Yeah, I mean, Black Panther does 
does that pretty well, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, Black Panther gives you that balance. It does and, right up until the end mm-hmm. when they they kill off a, a really interesting uh, villain, just as he and the hero are kind of coming to understand each other in a way that would deepen that relationship the next time they face each other. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really well built enmity that they just really missed a beat in cutting off at the end of the film. I I really think that that could have been in the way of some of the longer term hero villain relationships in comics could have been developed and and been more interesting over time. Uh, And I I think it's frankly weird that they killed him off. I mean, the one thing I will say or push back against with this letter is I think I really strongly feel that the Dark Knight is much more a reflection of fears than an assertion of uh, of any bias toward a certain political position maybe maybe you could see it as naturally falling into that into a conservative stance but the idea of fearing an agent of chaos of not understanding motive i mean i think that's a reflection of the line that of lines that we were kind of fed in terms of like terrorists hate our freedom I mean, of course that's a ridiculous thing for us to, to believe but if we do believe it that tight that belief is personified in the character of the Joker. So I feel like that is, I think it's much, I think the, the film is aware of that type of language and, and, um, and makes Joker the embodiment of that without necessarily you know, endorsing that point of view. Well, let's uh, move away from superheroes and politics and back to family and politics. We've got another feedback letter here about uh, the use of bloodlines in Joker. Uh, Keith, you want to read this one? Sure. Dylan writes, Early in the pod, Tasha argued that the seemingly contradictory political themes of the movie were unified by the same common goal, building a, and I quote, why is the world against me mythology in which everybody but you is a bad guy, which I think is an important lens needed to understand the movie. Its muddled ideas are simply discarded byproducts of that singular goal to establish a mythos where Arthur Fleck is entirely a victim of society at large. This is why many find its treatment of big ideas so superficial and unsatisfying. They're merely props used towards this movie's sole mission to construction the victimization mythos. Tasha adds that the Thomas Wayne plotline was, quote, ideologically muddled because I think it's ambiguous in a way that doesn't serve the film. I was surprised with this because I feel that if you buy Tasha's characterization of the film's goal, this ambiguity is the only way the Wayne plotline can function within the narrative. The key to this mythos of victimization is the broad sense of injustice against the world. It's essential that the blame be diffuse, or else the mythos would collapse, as the audience would be given a clear outlet for Arthur's pain and rage. Phillips is careful to avoid providing us with any tidy target to hold our blame. When Arthur loses his job or his medication, you can't point to a singular jerk who's at fault. When Arthur is terrorized by individuals, the finance bros or the teens in the opening, the movie reduces them to generic archetypes rather than characters with any real agency. But the ambiguity of Arthur's parenthood is most essential of all. A definitive answer to this question would create the ultimate target for Arthur's rage and would undermine the sense of grievance towards society at large. The ambiguity of the Wayne plotline is emblematic of Phillips being unable to make up his mind. It's a necessary step in the movie's singular goal of making Arthur completely a victim of society. Well, I love that interpretation. Yeah. Uh, I, I really enjoy when uh, I ask big rhetorical questions about what the hell is going on in this film and readers come up with, <laughs> with smart answers that I missed. I still think that it doesn't work particularly well for the film, that it just comes across as kind of an unanswered question. And this is uh, an edited version of this letter, which is about two or three times as long. Um, And the letter writer does kind of get into that in some ways. So I I still think it doesn't serve the story particularly well, that it just comes across as uh, a, a 
an unanswered question because of the way it's sort of drawn as is anything that happens in the film after a certain point real is anything that happens after a certain point of the film important. Uh, but I do think that the interpretation that if we had a definitive answer there, uh, he would have somebody to actually blame for his problems is, is a pretty smart one. I've been on this podcast and on Twitter and other places, uh, saying terrible things about the movie Joker, but this is a pretty good letter. <laughs> <laughs> so uh so uh, it's, it's a very interesting argument about the film's intentionality and um i'm buying into it i don't know if I, I don't know if that makes me like the film more but i definitely find this reading of the, of the film to be uh, a smart one well dylan you've otherwise pleased the panel into silence we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations if you feel so inclined we can feature your response on a future episode to reach us leave a short voicemail at 773 773- Two three four nine seven three zero, or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at another Bong Joon-ho film, Parasite. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, count the tentacles on your barbecue squid carefully, okay? There should be ten of them, and the long ones have a special something to them. Can't live with or without them, you might talk about them. But if someone else does well, then you'll knock them out, cause... Jimmy